Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Hello to you, members of the Recorded Historical Society, and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. My name is Ed Smith, and this is our weekly chat with an interesting someone with an interesting story to tell and some interesting records to discuss. Now, this week's episode is a very unique and very special one as we are discussing the recorded history of one man and his record label. Garrick Brown founded the legendary Cladder Records back in 1959 with the sole purpose to preserve and champion traditional Irish music, poetry, and with the stunning album sleeves, the work of contemporary artists and photographers. It was a mammoth undertaking, and it took a man of equal means, drive, and passion for all of the above to make it happen. The incredible story of Garrick Brown and his beloved Cladder Records has been spectacularly realised by his lifelong friend James Morrissey in the beautiful form of Real to Real Garrick Brown and Cladder Records by James Morrissey, a new large format hardback book together with an accompanying vinyl box set, which is set to be released this Friday, September the 29th by Cladder Records, and James dropped by to discuss Garrick's remarkable life and legacy. It's a powerful, funny, frustrating, charming, and often quite moving story, and he's done his dear pal some service telling and showing it in this book, let me tell you. So, without further ado, here he is, Mr. James Marcy. So on the 29th of September of this year, obviously, Cladder Records will publish Real to Real, Garrick Brown and Cladder Records by Mr. James Morrissey, a new large format hardback book together with a vinyl box set celebrating the life of Guinness heir Garrick Brown and his quest to preserve Ireland's musical and spoken word heritage with Cladder Records. And I'm absolutely very honoured to be joined by the man behind this stunning work, Mr. James Morrissey. James, thanks for coming in. Ed, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and look, it's the first time I've had as a guest as such a record label as the featured uh, recorded history on the podcast. and But f- not the first uh, man from Kilshimaw I've had on the podcast, of course, because <laughs> you know who I'm talking I about. Indeed. I've had Louis. Would he, would he have been a contemporary of yours? We went to school together. Get away. We went to school together. Uh, we were taught in the St. Louis convent in the early years. Then we were taught by Joe Rockneen. Then Louis started dabbling with show bands after he left secondary school. Uh, and I started studying uh, in UCD when I left secondary school. Uh, my studying was a bit like Louis dabbling. Okay. Um, <laughs> I did a commerce degree, but I kept failing my exams. Yeah. And to try and bring in a little income, I started working with Spotlight magazine. That's right, the legendary. Um... And Louis was working with Tommy Hayden at that time, uh, having graduated from being involved with the Royal Blues from our aforementioned county of Mayo, mm-hmm. Claire Morris. And uh, Louis and I kept in touch uh, quite a lot. Uh, we would have a spotlight poll every year which would adjudicate on the most popular bands and groups. So you'd get the call, I'm assuming, from Louis to... To provide him with dozens of copies of the magazine, <laughs> oh. free of charge, <laughs> so that he could fill in the coupons. Oh, no doubt. And he clearly was more assiduous and more determined than lots of others, because oh, yeah. he won several awards for groups like Chips and yeah, yeah. Uh, Red Hurley and the Nevada. One of the smartest operators in the business. One of the smartest. But interestingly yeah. enough, then go back about three or four years, and I met him uh, one Christmas 2018. Uh, 2017, 2018, and in uh, in the um, Four Seasons Hotel. And uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, Louis, you're you be the man. I said, I've gotten I've got involved with Cladder Records. Mm-hmm. He said, talk to Universal Music, talk to Mark Crossing and yeah. Universal Music. They would be very very interested. And that was. And here we are now. And here we are today. Um. So listen, congratulations, James. I was sent a review copy of the book now online. I had to downloaded it. I haven't got my hands on it physically yet, but I sat down and I was a little daunted before I opened the book even because, as I spoke to you on the phone yesterday, to my great shame and eternal embarrassment, trad music is a bit of a blind spot for me, as it has been, I suppose, for many people over the years, despite living here all my life. And so when I opened the book, I was like, oh gosh, 
this is going to be a lot to take in and there's a lot of stuff I won't know here. I absolutely flew and danced through this book in the number of hours it took to pour through not just the the beautifully written words and the story, but the photographs and the and the graphics on this. Absolutely incredible. And I take from our chat yesterday and from what a few other people have told me that this is a very personal project for you. You were great friends with Garrick. Yes, uh, it was very much a personal project with one objective in mind, and that was to recognize the contribution made by Garrick to traditional Irish music, the spoken word, and Irish culture. Um, that was the objective. It was, in some respects, it was a, sig- a significant and maybe even a major task, but made an awful lot easier by the archives, the material, the letters. And fortunately enough, I had spent two years on and off talking to Garrett and interviewing him mm-hmm. for the book. So he was aware this was happening before he passed, when Garrett passed away he, in 2018. He was. I, we happened to meet in the Marine Hotel around 2015, and he said, why don't you come out uh, and visit me? We've lots of things to discuss. And that was Garrett's way of saying, come out of the house and we <laughs> have it last. And, uh, but I hadn't seen him for a long time, so out I went. And he was talking about Clada. He was he was getting on in years, and he was wondering what might happen. Clada at this stage, it had its shop in Cecilia Street, and it was still selling product, but not releasing any product. And it was kind of moving at a pace that wasn't going in any particular it was direction. It was yeah. stagnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, "You know, all the tapes belonging to Clada are in the vaults in the Bank of Ireland." Uh, and I said, oh, are they? And I said, are they intact? He said, they are. And I said, well, at least they're safe there. He said, being safe is not good enough, he said. They're not accessible. Yeah. They have to be accessible. So we had several conversations over a couple of years, and I recorded him, and he got boxes from the archives of letters to show me what was there. And I must say, it was every box uh, opened up new stories, new anecdotes, new chapters, new everything. And I was very, I was very, very interested. He, he wondered if I was genuine. I think he wondered whether I was I just trying to buoy him up, um, because he really wanted something to happen with Clada. But I think he was a bit despondent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, this can be done, and this should be done. And the last call I had from him was in early March of 2018. He'd been in the Far East for a number of months. And he was on his way home, and I happened to be up in Lugalaw going through some materials, and he phoned, and one of the staff there said that I was there. And he said, I'm really looking forward to this book project. Can we make it happen? And I said, Gareth, we can make it happen. And he said, and what about the revival of Clado Records? I said, well, Gareth, one thing at a time. Uh, so yeah. uh, he died four days later Imagine. in London on his way home. Wasn't it lovely to get that phone, that phone call though and that conversation? It was because it, yeah. it, it, it really copper fastened yeah. my belief that he really, that did want, he really did want to do it. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were, some people were cynical about, about Garrett's whole approach to Clada. It was very, very genuine. It was very That's, genuine. That definitely comes through the book. You know, I suppose for those, I just want to mention, as name dropping goes, you know, there's some serious heavyweight names littered throughout this. You've got uh, Michael D. Higgins, of course, Bono. You've got Mick Jagger makes an appearance, Piers Brosnan, Picasso, uh, Lucian Freud, Anita Pannenberg, Sean Connery. That, that quote from Sean Connery, I'm not going to give anything away. Beautifully written quote from Sean Connery. Not that I should have been surprised, but he described uh, this musician that to got his instrument in the house one night. The fiddle, I think it was. He, Tommy he, Potts. Yeah, Tommy Potts, yeah. And the way Sean Connery describes that moment, yeah. it was almost as if Beckett himself wrote it. It's actually astonishing. But listen, we should really go back to Garrick himself. So Garrick Brown, his own life story is worth a book in its own right. So he was a Skyan, uh, he was of the Guinness family. So, and brother of Tara. Brother of Tara. Who was immortalized, obviously, as, I mean, as many people know. In, that, in the Beatles song, Day in the Life, and a, another song, actually, as it turns out, Pretty Little Things, I think, in around then, immortalizing. But to go back to Garrick, so what can you tell us about Garrick's background and then his, what kind of upbringing he had and, his, and their, that family's position, position, I suppose, in Irish society? Well, 
Garrett was born uh, and spent his early years in Castle McGarrett, a, a, a very large estate uh, owned by his father, Lord Orne Moore and Brown, uh, near Clare Morris. And uh, that was the seat of Lord Orne Moore and Brown, and they owned a lot of property in the west of Ireland. Uh, by all accounts, from everything I read before this project started, uh, the family were very were very decent mm-hmm. in the way in which they treated tenants. They gave a lot of employment. They gave a lot of employment. Yeah. And when you look back in Irish history, there's really only one question, were they good landlords or not good landlords? And certainly, Orrin Moore and Brown, they were. Um, and Garrett's father farmed there uh, in a way. He lived to 100 years of age. He was the longest serving Lord. A member of the House of House Lords, Lords, but never spoke. Yeah, why was that? Uh, I suppose he was given a title and he didn't take it too seriously. He just sat around, he just, he just he turned up. He used it as an opportunity to one. go to London and attend meetings. <laughs> uh, 70 uh, years he was doing it. Quite a number of years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Garrett grew up there. Garrett said that he, his early memory was of listening to Radio Aaron and Kieran uh, Macmahuna and mm, hearing legend, Irish yeah. music. Mm. And that there was, that a number of the, the staff in Castle McGarrett were very interested in Irish music and whistled Irish tunes. And Garrett said he followed them around like a, a Pied Piper. Um, so he got into it that way. Uh, he doesn't know how or why, but it just it kind of evolved. Uh, the, 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 his parents uh, split up and Garrett, along with Tara, younger brother, and uh, Lady Una uh, headed to Lugalaw, which had been given to her by her father, yeah. uh, uh, one of the Guinness heirs, obviously, uh, as a wedding present. And that's where they lived. And it was it was while in Lugalaw, in those early years, that Lugalaw was a place where people came and went at all hours of day and night. Lady Una Guinness was a wonderful hostess and parties went on almost all the time. And for a new party to start didn't mean that the last party had to finish. There's a lovely moment in the book where he's a little boy and one of the guests says to him, what are you doing up so late? And the guy turns around, it's eight in the morning. Even as a, that was the kind of house, and that gives you yeah. an insight into that life that Garrett had, mm. which sounds idyllic in one respect, but left him with an awful lot of responsibility for himself. He was mixing with adults. Tara was mixing with adults. Uh, Garrett went to school in was sent off to school in Switzerland. Of course, any form of regimentation he, he, he despised. So he concocted a, a letter that he wrote in his mother's name to the head of the school saying, Garrett, please come home urgently. A uh, serious matter has arisen at home. So Garrett flew home. That was the, the end of his relationship. Never went back. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a lot of that. He spoke a lot about people he'd meet at, 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 at parties in the house. Brendan Behan was very good to him. Mm. Brendan Behan took an interest in him. And I often wonder, was Garrett a bit of a lost soul as a child? That's what? the sense I got as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that came through throughout his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he would, mm-hmm. I suppose, that, that kind of chaotic, yes. slightly, I can be, I'll say it now, a neglectful upbringing in so much as that maybe the attention wasn't paid, that when you're, you're left, you know, I know a lot of ch- children of, I suppose, very wealthy people that were just left to their own devices. A little bit too much, I think. I think know. Garrett, a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah is a very, very good description. Mm. Garrett was brought up to learn how to deal and handle money or the trappings of it to deal with. Um, he was very close to Tara. They were very, they were very, very close. Uh, they used send off, they used write off for Italian operatic music to a record shop in uh, somewhere in, in Italy 
uh, Gareth would have been taken to various places like in London and in Paris. Freud took him to a, a gallery. Is it Lucian Freud? The boy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and showed painting Gareth said, what do you see? And Gareth said, painting the lady. What do you see? He persisted. Mm-hmm. And he said that Gareth always said that Freud taught him how to see uh, and how to look at things from a different perspective. He, um, uh, Jimmy O'Dee uh, was, took a great interest in him and he, he recalled even a couple of years before he died how Jimmy O'Dee worried about what was going to That's become right. of him. Yeah. Um, uh, so he had that kind of... A, his father wouldn't have been a, a massive figure in his life. He a, would a, not have been a presence. massive figure in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loved his father. Um, but I think Garrett maybe craved more love uh, and affection and attention. And... Attention and affection are yeah. they're kind of first cousins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he he it was it was that kind of a, a scenario, and he so he was a free agent. Uh, in his teen years, Tara headed off to London, uh, which would have been a more explainable route than Garrett. He was the sixties. Of course, swinging sixty. He was right in the heart of it, hanging out with the Stones and the Beatles. Carnaby Street. Right he in the was heart of it, with yeah. Paul Paul McCartney a couple of days before mm. he before he died in the car crash. Uh, Brian Jones and Jagger and Jones and a lot of them were at were at, were at parties. Tara's twenty first party was held in Lugalaw. And, and flew people. The in. loving spoonfuls, uh, summer in the city, were yeah. flown from the state, and. The drummer in The Loving Spoonful wasn't able to travel across the Atlantic for this one gig. Uh, he had a head cold or a sore throat. And they had to get someone to fit in. And I think they got Mick Fleetwood. <laughs> oh, God's sake. From Fleetwood Mac. As you do, as I say. As you do. Yeah. As, as, but that was the life, you know, I suppose it's hard for us to comprehend. But that was quite normal in the aristocratic circles. And Irish people just lived cheek by jowl with these, with these families. Money, no object. Yeah. Uh, and again, not that they weren't Irish, of course, sorry. But. Yeah. But again, I think that, that helped Gareth decide that whatever he wanted, he could have. Mm. Now, in money, he could. And I'm sure along the way, and in latter years, he knew that he wasn't able to get but it, he was able to open doors, and that was crucial. So he 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 started learning the pipes with uh, Ivor Brown, uh, the psychiatrist, no relation. Uh, Leo Rossum taught him. Uh, he 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 adored Leo Rossum, and Leo Rossum also later taught Paddy Maloney and Liam Liam O'Flynn. Uh, but Ivor Brown and Garrett discussed why Leo Rossum was so important that he's one of the last remaining pipe makers and pipe... He's considered pipe the greatest of all time. He was. Yeah, yeah. And so that he, his music must be preserved. Ivor Brown, I think, approached several of the English record companies that had offices here and uh, they weren't interested. So that's how the very first album was 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 uh, recorded. Uh, King of the Pipers. Uh, the company was set up in 1959. Garrett... Uh, was nineteen years of age. He couldn't. Even, he was. He was. He was too young to be a company director. But you look at the photographs of him, and there's so many beautiful photographs. And I'm just going to refer back to Liam O'Flynn there, and that stunning photograph. Just in case we don't get to it later on in the chat, I just want to reference it now for people to look out for it, where he's playing at the grave of Seamus Ennis. Seamus Ennis, with pipes that were nearly 100 or 200 years old, that Seamus Ennis had passed on to him. Correct, like a, like a flame by his father, and passed on to Liam O'Flynn, and Liam O'Flynn passed ch- them on to Parik Macmahuna, who son of Kieran yeah. Macmahuna, who Just, has who has. It's such on. a powerful, incredible photograph. But sorry, I, I, but no, I, I, to me, that's it's that just, is the best photograph stop, in the book. It stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, I thought it's all there, isn't it? It's all there. Yeah. You have everything. You have the celebration of a life. Mm. You have music being central to the celebration yeah. of a life. You have the graveside. You have 
you know, it, it's it's somber, celebratory. You know, I, I, and it's just the passing on of it, the of the flame. It's Stunning. to me, it's it is yeah. the most emotive photograph in the book. Yeah, I just well, if anyone listens to this, do look out for that photograph because you know there's so many beautiful photographs. You're going to be dazzled. But anyway, to go back to the story, when you look at the photographs of Garrick around this time, he looks about twelve or thirteen, and I had to double check the dates on the because he was nineteen, very baby faced. Uh, we'll get to his sartorial impact on the world in, in a little while. But from from my reading of the book, well, actually, not my reading of the book, from what you tell us, is that the so-called Dublin literati, that your Anthony Cronin's and your Richard Wright, was it? And there was a little bit of snootiness or resistance, or they couldn't quite understand why he was setting up Clatter Records. There, were, there was a bit of resistance. Well, there, there most certainly was. And I think that those who felt that they were in social circles part of the scene uh, part of the scene as featured in, in Dead as Doornails by Anthony Cronin mm. or John Ryan who owned the Bailey uh, that Garrett was maybe a bit of an imposter yeah the West that, Brit element yeah played a part and that he and he was doing this uh for not for notoriety for himself, mm. uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but that lingered a long, long time. They were still a blow in, uh, regardless of no doubt about that. And yeah. when he was when he was recording Patrick Kavanagh, he took a long time to agree on the amounts of money because the the Monaghan poet. Uh, knew what he wanted. There's lovely vignettes in that, Jim. You, you described that so beautifully because Kevin is a very imposing, intimidating figure, physically as well physically. as intellectually. So he was in the pub and I think you, you say that Garrick had been kind of asking him and suddenly yes. Kevin goes, right, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. But it was, he got the it was and 50 he, pounds. 50 pounds and, and Kevin, Garrick said Kevin was very, very honourable. Garrick wanted to hear the Monaghan accent reading the poetry. Several people said to Garrett, you, you, you should get an actor to read Kevin's poetry. You know, he's... MacLeamore or something like yeah, that. Kind of. He has this Monaghan accent and I don't know if that will work very well. It's the only Garrett, way to, I want, it's the only way to I hear. I want to have the poet read yeah, his poetry. Yeah. Um, and Garrett said he took quite a bit of criticism f- for that um, and he, he lived with it uh, with, without any great difficulty. He was very fond of Kavanaugh who who could it be? Who could be irascible? Mm. Could be difficult. And I said to him one night when we were recording some of this, and he, I said to Gareth, uh, "Was was Patrick Cavanaugh a very difficult man?" And he just said, "We can all be difficult yeah. at times." Uh, so he was tolerant of the artistic. He was very tolerant, and he was very empathetic. Uh, and people who who had their own issues in life. Um, Kevin had he he was he was hugely yeah. supportive and I think that is a reflection yeah. of Garrett's own life. Okay. Uh, and there's the chapter on Freddie May, oh the composer, who who spent an awful lot of time in mental institutions. Yeah, it's very moving in parts this oh, book. Oh and, and Garrett went out of his way to help this man to restore his confidence in himself to give vent to his talents and to give him something, something that would uplift him. Yeah. To go back to Kavanaugh, just another one of your many wonderful vignettes, as I say, uh, in the book where he, Kavanaugh encounters Seamus Heaney for the first time. The, the sense of the old bull and the, and the young bull and Garrick is there to see the kind of, the understanding between the two and Kavanaugh improved and on you go. So yes. there's so many of these wonderful moments in the That was book. the only time the two of them yeah. ever met. Yeah. He, uh, he was the up and coming poet. Kavanaugh was at this stage very seriously ill. He died a few months later. Yeah. But that sense again, like we said about Lee Muffin, the passing on of the of the flame. So Clatter Records is up and running. Uh, the Chieftains then are obviously very central to the lore history and I suppose success of Clatter Records and his relationship with Paddy Maloney. And Paddy, Paddy started working with Clada yeah. before the Chieftains were ever formed. He was office manager. He was office manager. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and managing director. Yeah. And it really was, Clada uh, was a chaotic place. Yeah. It was chaotic from day one and it remained chaotic throughout its existence. There's some great letters from the lawyer 
there are some great things <laughs> lawyer. Where's the money? <laughs> There's also a great reference to a member of, of, of the Cladis staff yeah. writing to Garrett when Garrett is complaining that the company is not making enough money or ma- issuing enough new material. And there's a letter written to Garrett to say, it is no coincidence that the last 12 months have been one of the most successful in the company's history. Uh, uh, and in that regard, last year was a time when the two directors <laughs> in the company spend the most amount of time out of the country. So the less he got involved with the company, the more... yeah. That's the dichotomy of the man, isn't it? Yes. So, and, and again, with Paddy Maloney and the, the early days, the chieftains and the debate, should they be called the chieftains uh, or the queer fellas? And John Montague, the poet, suggested the chieftains because he had written a poem of the same title. And then uh, the start of the chieftains and, and again, Garrett's vision for an interesting, uh, eye-catching cover asking Eddie Delaney, uh, also from Mayo, from Claire Morris, whose father Mayo was, Mafia, everywhere yes, you whose go. whose father worked in Castle McGarrett, but Garrett didn't know him at that yeah. stage. Eddie Maloney, uh, Eddie Delaney, I'm sorry, Eddie Delaney designed that, that very first cover. And in around that time, Eddie Delaney was, was, I think, trained to become a teacher. And he encountered a young politician along the way in one of Dublin's establishments by the name of uh, Charles Hottie. And they started chatting away and he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I do sculpture, but I want to be a teacher. He says, try your hand at, at sculpture first. He says, you can always become a teacher wow. anytime. That encouragement of the artist. And to go to, we need to talk about the artwork for Clada, actually iconic. You know, you talk about Blue Note Records and some of the great labels over the years. It's up there with the visuals. And Garrick was obviously the recording process. You know, he went from recording Kavanagh to the Chieftains. His relationship uh, with Beckett, obviously. Yes. And so he's spoken word and the traditional Irish music, but the visual, the graphic design of the sleeves was just as important to him as what was on the record itself. And it would cause, he was very fastidious. Is that a kind way of saying he was oh, he quite was. quite fussy and oh, particular? Very, yes. Very, so it very, could often delay yes. the release of albums. or And he was, he, he, and he wanted, he wanted excellence at all costs. Mm. Uh, and that resulted in some albums being delayed for a couple of years. Uh, he got Catherine Follett to design the Star Above the Garter. He had, um, um, oh, he had photographs taken by a wonderful English photographer by the name of Jeffrey Craig, uh, who was with him for quite a long time. Stunning photographs. The boxes of these photographs that are still haven't been They're taken un- out of the box. The covers are, are fantastic. timeless. Yes. They're very avant-garde and ahead of their time. Oh, well ahead. I mean, I certainly, I think if, if, and it's something we would like to do, uh, I certainly would love to do posters yeah. of the album they would covers. Sell. They would absolutely sell. Because uh, they're stunning pieces of work in their own right. And I think, listen, again, this is before my time mm-hmm. and even within, outside my musical knowledge remit, but my sense was that Irish traditional music at the time and previous to that, although he had a very good relationship with Sean Arita up until a point, was slightly stuffy, conservative, and, and they were very protective of. And then along comes this aristocratic, so-called inverticons, West Britain, mm. shaking things up mm. and doing things in a different way. So that must have caused some ripples and some waves. Well, you also had Gwellian in existence at the time who were doing wonderful work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wonderful work. And Aurea's first recordings were with Gwailin, and then he he went over to to to, to uh, Clada. Um, and I, you know, I'd say there are still some people who wondered why was why was he doing it? And I think it it certainly was not as might have been portrayed by some as a folly and self indulgent. He really, really believed, in it. and I think to give. Further vent to that line of thinking, his support of Irish crafts uh, when he was when he was getting any work done in Lugalaw, like he told me once that he found a, a, a wallpaper producer in Roscommon, and he found some that it's silk. He was big into the wools. Uh, and he used to go down to 
once or twice a year, he would head down to Miller's in Clifton to, to buy his tweeds. Ronnie Miller still remembers it. Could you tell the story? We'll get into his, yeah, we will, we'll, 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 we'll use this story to, to describe. It's a, I think it's a little pejorative to say he was a dandy, but he dressed beautifully. So his visual presentation was a massive part of, I suppose, his aura or his presence. There's a story you tell in the book about, I'm not sure if you were there, maybe, but where a button came off. When, that was Limo Flynn. Limo Flynn wedding. tells the story, the, the wedding. Yeah. And Dolly Can you tell that story? It's incredible. Sorry, say again. Dolly McMahon was sitting yeah. beside him at the wedding and they were all having a great time and it was a wonderful wedding. But midway through it, Garrett lost a button from his tweed coat or jacket. And he got into quite a heap over it. Uh, and Dolly said, Garrett, it's fine, we'll find it. Well, I want to find it now, he said. So... Not to be able to go down on their hands and knees and look for this button. The button was never found. So the next morning, Dolly gets a call from Garrett to say, I'm going to London. Would you like to join me? And he said, what are you going to London for? I have a job to do in London. Uh, would you like to join me? And Dolly said, I can't. Uh, I'm busy. Uh, I have children to rear. And uh, Garrett said, okay, so it went off to London. The next day, went down to some street where there was the haberdashery, narrow street, up, he confirmed it all to me, up two flights of stairs and up into a room that went all the way up to the ceiling with small little drawers. And Gareth said, they welcomed me immediately. And he said, and I, I took one of the other buttons off the coat. And, I said, and this guy, she says, flies up the ladder and on the small little drawer on the right-hand side, fifth one in, he comes running back down, he says, that's your butt. That speaks to his... And that was the level particular, of... And it did drive people... There was an obsessive compulsion that, there. N no doubt about it. Mm. And that was at the heart of Garrett, wanting, wanting to... Now, is, you know, you can ask yourself, is that is that the conduct, behaviour of somebody who has a lot of time on their hands for whom small things become very big things. Uh, uh, I don't know, but certainly that level of attention to detail and precision and perfection... There's a curse and a blessing. I mean, ...is why we have Cladarec. Yeah, of course. And one of the things that comes, again, comes through very clearly in the book, in your interpretation of... Uh, well, not actually, maybe because you just told you outright, but he very much resisted the accusation, as he saw it, that this... Cladder Records was a play thing for him, or a little kind of a, a side hustle of an aristocrat that uh, it was very much at the very centre of his life, that it was a real work of, and a, and a, a journey of passion for him. Absolutely. Yeah. And he could uh, very defensive of anyone. Yeah, and, and Erskine Childers, before he became president, was down in the law to party and he said to Gareth, what are you doing promoting this Dadly Ailey music from our past? We We are a country heading in the other direct we want to go to the forward and he just dismissed him and he kept on with it. Of no doubt Garrett again I think he may have fallen in love with Irish culture, Irish music, Irish heritage and he was going to do it come hell or high water and uh, he was going to do it as good as and possibly better than anybody else and the way he preserved the music of so many people, Aurea, the Tommy Potts um, Seamus Ennis Seamus Ennis uh, the various poets John Montague Thomas Kinsella um, some Scottish poets that we have recorded that have never been released um, a Russian musician that we have recordings of never released um, all of that and to, and to help and encourage people and this was at a time when the tide of pop music was yeah. coming across the Irish Sea from London and Radio Luxembourg and it was coming across the Atlantic from all the big record labels. So the fear, I think, from Garrick's point of view is that he was there as an archivist and a, as a preserver. Like the, sorry, like, like as a preserver, as Alan Lomax was in the, in the States, Absolutely. there to save before the onslaught of modernism or Absolutely. it got forgotten in, in the storm. That was, no doubt about happening. that. I think 
Alan Lomax and Bono makes reference to Alan, mm. Alan, Alan Lomax in comparison to I think Alan Lomax um Seamus Ennis yeah. who was collecting music for Radio Aaron and also for the BBC uh, and a wonderful book written on that by Rena Yorgoin uh, and uh, Kieran McMahoney. McMahoney's a I legend. think if you look at, at uh, they all fall into the same category uh, and I think Garrett uh, was somewhere in there. You see, again, with all these celebrities turning up at Lugalaw for parties and meeting up with Garrett and whether it was the Rolling Stones or whoever it was, uh, Garrett was promoting this new interest. Because somebody would be, like Paddy Maloney would be there with the tin whistle or you'd have Liam O'Flynn or Tommy Potts, as you say. I, I just love the image of Mick Jagger there, all loose, and he's, and he's imagined just a velvet jacket and a beautiful woman, or two, Three. in some kind of aristocratic seat beside him. And then the outcomes. The Illin Pipes or something, and that the, and the, the marriage and the kind of conflict and the marrying of those two of those two worlds, and it's not all facilitated by Gary. Absolutely, and I think again, it, this is not about claiming or whatever. I think that the role that Garrett played in the bringing the ears and the eyes of the world to Irish music, uh, and I would single out the chieftains in this Paddy was up in Lugalaw and the great and the good were there this was a massive door opener massive door opener to the world um, and he 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 made all these contacts along the way and the first seven albums produced to the highest standard quality materials design and then the chieftains m- moved on but the friendship with, with Paddy continued yeah. all through and through. They understood Paddy. each other, I think. They understood each other. Yeah. And Paddy was an, an incredibly outstanding musician, but he also was a person who could bring things together. He was a political very, animal as well, wasn't he? Oh, First band to play, Western band to play in China, famously. Right. Yeah. That is right. And wonderful photographs taken yeah. of the chieftains when they came back from that trip dressed up in Chinese regalia. They looked like the Beatles. They already looked like the Beatles. Yeah. The photograph was taken by Roy Esmond who was the staff photographer with Spotlight magazine when I was there. And I suppose we'll get to the legacy of Clatter Records and, and Garrick in a moment. Just I think it's only rightful that we spend a moment talking about the devastation that was left behind with the death of Tara. And you tell the story, again, so beautifully and delicately and respectfully. It was 1966 when, for anyone that doesn't know, Tara Brown was at a party or on the way to on the way to a party, his girlfriend was in the King's car. Road. King's Road and hi, driving at hundred miles an hour down the King's Road. If anyone knows it, mm. anywhere in, in London city centre, didn't see the light and crashed into a parked lorry. And they say that he swerved to save her life and, and take his own. But as we as we've mentioned before, immortalised in the, the the song from the Beatles, "A Day in the Life." I read the news today, oh boy, yes. and wonderful book. And there's a moment in the book where you you ask Garrick. And again, I, I don't want to, I suppose, give away too much because it does almost read like a novel, this. But when you ask Garrick about Tara, he comes up in conversation and he goes quiet and then he says, I'm I'm going to stop talking. And he goes upstairs for the night and he doesn't come down until the next day and he sits in the exact same seat and he goes, okay, I'm ready now to... This is 40, 50 years after, whatever it was. And he says, I'm glad you asked me about Tara. But to that day, decades and decades afterwards, he found it so difficult to even hear his name mentioned in the same room, not to mention trying to engage in a conversation about Tara. So I think it's a central part of this story. And it's and it's a part of the story that is so vital to Garrick's life and obviously to then by proxy to the story of Clatter Records that you'd wonder, was that a driving force in his life as well? That kind of the escape from the the grief because it was real for him and maybe his inability to process that. In a, oh, I think that is... In a real way. I think he spent his life trying to process uh, I think it, it left him with awful periods of abject loneliness. He had an ability that, again, was, was uncanny, and I have... I don't know many people I've, I've seen it in and that was he could read a person emotionally very quickly 
that was because he was a very emotional person himself. So can you describe what it was like being in his company? He was a wonderful human being. And like the rest of us, had his frailties. Very generous. Very, very interesting. His level of knowledge about topics that interested him was of a level that I've rarely come across in other people in relation to their relative areas of interest. Um, there was a huge sensitivity. There was compassion. Uh, there was great emotion. Very, very, very emotional. He was incredibly shy. And yet, if he walked into a room full of people, he walked and he would walk in as if he was the master of ceremonies, knew everybody, and was at his happiest in that environment. And this was the great contradiction about Garrett uh, the gregariousness, the wit. He had a wonderfully, wonderful sense of humor. He loved being tapped. <laughs> about particular topics uh, and he watched with great interest how two people with maybe substantial or even gigantic egos would deal with each other. Yeah. He would put two people's seizures at a dinner. He was a bit of a devil that way. Oh, he was, he was a five-star devil. Uh, <laughs> he would put two people who hadn't, who not only didn't have anything in common, but who, whatever they knew about each other, they didn't like. Yeah. He put him seat beside. There is, in the library in Lugalaw, there were, uh, Garrett had all his books, 20,000 of them. He had his own librarian as well. His own librarian, Mary Hayes, who did wonderful work. And uh, he, there were two Irish literary figures who didn't get on that very well with each other, mainly because one of them might have shown interest in the other man's wife okay. at, at a party All right. or and maybe dancing some affection on her. Uh, but nothing... Are they still with us now? But, pardon? Are they still alive? No. Okay. Um, and the husband of the attractive lady who had been approached by the other literary figure despised this man. And whenever they would encounter each other, they would just make sure they were in different places in the same room. So Garrett, in terms of where he put his books, he didn't go by alphabetical order for either title or author, but didn't he put the books by the two gentlemen oh, side by side? He said, they've got to live together in my life. So uh, he, he was wonderful in yeah, those. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he would, he would set up scenarios uh, particularly with people whose egos uh, might have exceeded their ability. And a man without ego himself. I, a man very much without yeah. ego. People thought that all of this, the dress and the pomp and the ceremony was this dandy. Uh, uh, he was much, much, much more than that. He dressed up because he felt that people should dress up for occasions. He dressed up uh, top hat and tails for Louis Lebrocchi's funeral. Uh, there's a photograph that I've seen. We haven't been able to use it in the book, unfortunately, of Garrett and his father leaving the coroner's court after the inquest Tara's death in London in 19, this would be 1967. And both of them dressed in those long, dark coats. And really, it is one of the saddest photographs I've ever seen of relating to people that I would know. It's just, and yet, the, the stoicism. Yeah. Stiff uh, upper lip, the old. Yes, and you, and you didn't, Garrett hid, hid his emotion an awful lot, and his emotions, uh, uh, which you shouldn't. Mm. But again, Given, given his pedigree, given all of that stiff upper lip, you know. I never uh, had a chance, really. I no, think, you I know. mean, I always, I always still remember 
always will remember I was an altar boy in Kilshima and I rem- the first time I ever saw a man cry was at a funeral mass. Uh, so rare, I remember. It was so rare, you never saw it. N- no. Never. Yeah. Growing up in the country, Ness. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, Gareth was of that era and yet he was right up to speed mm. with everything that was going on. To go back to Clatter Records then, um, it's still with us. It is still with us, very much. Yeah. And you were explaining to me before we started talking on the podcast, you know, this is come. This book is coming out. It's timely in many ways, obviously, but specifically, I think, because there is a genuine resurgence in Irish traditional music, like the Lancome and Mary Wallopers, and the eyes of not just people that wouldn't have normally listened, to, but the eyes and ears of the world are on Irish trad now. It's spreading its its wings. Uh, and well into the future now, it's in safe hands. So you were spl- you were telling me that Clada is going to be right at the heart of that as well. That you've signed some very exciting trad artists. Very much so. We've signed um, Neve Berry. We've more artists in 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 the pipeline. the The transformation for the label came with signing a license agreement with Universal Music, who are already here have Holzier. Um, oh, sure. The biggest in the world. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and, and I, they have been outstanding in their approach. And at, when we were sitting down and negotiating with them in the, in the very beginning, we knew they would be very interested in Chieftains and Patrick Kavanagh and Seamus Heaney. That was fine. But would they be interested in what I would regard as fringe? The more niche artists. More niche. Mm-hmm. And in 1992, Cladder released an, ar- an album called Beauty on Ilan, the music of the Blasket Islands, based on recordings from the 1950s. And I said to Universal that at one of the meetings, so when we were getting down to the detail of how this might progress, I said, there's one album we, we must release, but I want it released with a book that explains who the singers were um, uh, all the details about the songs, the singers, life on the Blaskets at the time, and I'd like us to identify some new artists who are direct descendants of the original musicians, and looked at the guys, Universal, uh, Nick Younger and Mark Crossingham, and Mark, and uh, yeah, and we chatted about it, and I said, "Are you up for it?" And they said, "We are." Once I knew that we could get them interested in yep. what I would call off-center big names, uh, I knew it. And they, they have been fantastic. Yeah. And the book, as we say, I don't know, there's a lovely quote, if you don't mind. This is from your from the book itself. I'm not going to read too much out of it because I'll get sued. <laughs> Garrick Brown's contribution to Ireland's cultural heritage, especially in music, song, and the spoken word, is immeasurable. The greatest homage that those of us charged with preserving and building on this unique legacy can pay him is to continue his journey, to introduce the Clatter catalogue to any and all audiences and also to welcome new young artists to this most iconic of labels. Lugala made me and I in part made Garrick Bram. That pretty much sums it up, does it? It does, really. Yeah. I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again now that it's... I'm getting a little emotional now even because I found it incredibly powerful book, James. You know, again, I went in, I suppose maybe it helped the fact I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get any of this. It's not my my realm, but it's incredibly affecting. Uh, it's a wonderful testament to your dear friend and his legacy, and which lives. And I think it looks incredible, which he would have been proud of. He was great company. He's great company in the book, in written form. And as you've described him and written him down, and I think what you've done here very elegantly as well is you've taken a little step aside, you know, and let other people have their voice in this as well. The people that knew him better, he's housekeeper, he's librarian, Bono, Michael D. Higgins, from from all walks of life. And it again, it's a testament to the man, you know, whilst he might have come from the family and heritage that he did, that he was as comfortable as he was with paupers as, well, as he was with kings. You know, he was that kind of character. And I think you've really captured him beautifully and you've captured what he not only tried to achieve but did achieve with Cloud of Records. And it's so heartening to see that it's still going strong. Well, thank you very much. I think that, you know, this was maybe 
in orchestral terms, maybe maybe I am the conductor mm. of an orchestra, uh, an orchestra made up of very very talented people who preserved items, who whose professionalism contributed to But the real testament to this is that it it that it's it, that it's of interest to people, to purists uh, like yourself, and that's really. That's really what that that's the test of 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 this book. It, it was a labour of love from start to finish. It was a wonderfully Garrett in life, you know, rarely turned up when he should turn up at events. Um, but and and you know, in a way, Garrett's presence is here oh, today much more in this studio than it was in a lot of places that he should have been in when he was alive. And how do you feel now that it's about to be released? Is there a sense of completion? And I, a trepidation, honestly. Oh, really? I, I find it, I, I don't want to see the book. Oh, have you not uh, seen it? No. In its no. printed form? No, no, it's not. We haven't got received copies of it yet. Um, no. uh, I do, the, this part of the process I, is the part I dislike most of all. The part I liked most of all was getting to the final stage and saying that's the finished product. But between then... And when people see it, I, it it probably is a bit like a clad album. How how will it, how will it, how, <laughs> how will it be received? How will it go down? You know. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, James. The reason you did the book in the first place. Do you feel that you've achieved that? Oh, I I I am. I set out to do one thing and one thing only: to recognise the contribution that Garrett Brown made to our culture and with the help, assistance, encouragement, involvement of a lot of people, I believe this book is theirs and it's theirs to celebrate the life of a truly unique individual. And it does. James Morrissey, thank you so much. Yeah, my conversation with Mr. James Morrissey there and a conversation, I have to be honest, that stayed with me for hours, if not days afterwards. Real to real, Garrick Brown and Cladder Records by James Morrissey is gifted to the world this Friday the 29th thanks to Cladder Records and is a quite phenomenal achievement and one I cannot recommend enough. I really hope you enjoyed our chat through the recorded history of Cladder Records and Garrick Brown and you'll join me next week and every Sunday after that if you want to check out any of the Cladder back catalogue or indeed anything at all that might tickle your eardrums I would absolutely love it if you did so by way of our excellent sponsors at therecordhub.com. It's got all you need at the click of a button. Next week, I'm in conversation with one of Ireland's greatest performers and interpreters of songs, the wonderful Camille O'Sullivan. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. Now, all you have to do is hit the old subscribe button and become a weekly listener. But above all that, subscribe to yourself. You are so beautiful to me good luck Go Loud presents Recorded History hosted produced and researched by me Ed Smith at Go Loud Studios the show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D Ready our series is proudly supported by therecordhub.com your local Irish and online record store